Welcome to AJHP Voices, a series of discussions with AJHP authors and interviews focused on contemporary practice issues. AJHP is the official journal of ASHP, and its mission is to advance science, pharmacy practice, and health outcomes. Hi, I'm Daniel Koba, the editor of AJHP. Thanks for joining us in this episode of AJHP Voices. This podcast engages authors from recent AJHP publications who will give us an inside look at their work and explore the impactful, relevant, and cutting-edge professional and scientific content that drives optimal medication use and health outcomes. Today, we'll be discussing an article published recently on AJHP.org, Gender Inequity and Sexual Harassment in the Pharmacy Profession, Evidence and a Call to Action. Our guests today are Dr. Brittany Bissell of the University of Kentucky College of Pharmacy, Dr. Rebecca Smith of the Department of Pharmacy at the University of Arkansas for the Medical Sciences, and Dr. Mujde Hevner. Thank you for joining me today. So, Brittany, let me start with you. And one of the things that when you when you look at the this article that jumps out immediately before you even get into the content is just the impressive author team. And I was wondering, before we even start to talk about your findings uh, and your recommendations, if you could just tell me you assembled an impressive team of 21 women in pharmacy. How would you go about recruiting the authors? Uh, yeah, so when determining the author list, a, a few of the, the authors I had already been in contact with, with, you know, just a lot of what had been going on and just personal short story sharing over the past um, few months and years. So there were a few individuals that I knew were passionate about this topic, like Dr. Smith, for example, that I knew would be great stakeholders to have with, within the conversation and within this publication. However, I wanted to make sure that we included a diverse um, group of authors, so making sure that we really had included individuals that would be able to provide different perspectives, especially um, in our minority populations and someone to to represent the LGBTQ community um, as well, while also representing those folks that were um, new to the career, but also those people that were well-experienced. So be sure to include a pharmacy student to be able to share their experiences as well as you know some people that have even been presidents of national organizations that that I that I've seen speak to these subject matters so really just making sure that we had a large group of people that were able to represent as many perspectives as possible when developing the manuscript I think that's really helpful to understand and for listeners to hear because when you see an author list on, you know, a one-dimensional page, you you that doesn't necessarily in all cases become so apparent to you. I think so I think that is extremely helpful and provides context for the listeners. You know, Becky, one of the things is that you distinguish in the article the difference between gender equality and gender equity. And I think this is a really important distinction, but I was wondering if you could walk us through that because I think it still trips some people up, the differences between equality and equity. And you give some uh, sort of great examples in the article. Could you walk us through that? Uh, Yeah, of course. And that's also something that I personally learned from this experience. Um, You'll kind of see from the beginning of our posts and our 
movement, I guess you could say, we did use the word equality a lot and we have been, or we've now shifted that towards more of an equity focus. And so um, I would be happy to go through those with you. So equality is when you have the same rights, status, opportunities as others. And that's regardless of your gender, of your background, of your socioeconomic status, all those things. So it's just having the same equal rights as someone. And then when you contrast that with equity, that is the fairness of that equality. And so saying that someone has equality and that they're equal um, means nothing if you don't take into account their equity as well. However, gender equity is the fairness of the treatment of men and women, and that takes into account their needs and backgrounds. So Becky, can you bring this to life by giving us an example of where where both equality and equity come into play and, and using the example of gender equity? Can you give us a tangible example of that? Yes, I can certainly try. So the first thing that really comes to mind is throughout the pandemic, we've had to switch to we've had to switch our meetings to virtual, um, which has been a great thing because we kind of thought, well, this gives everyone the opportunity to go to these meetings. They don't have to travel. So maybe, you know, women and men that are caregivers at home don't have to find childcare and they don't have to um, set up all of these things to go to this meeting. And so we think that we're giving everyone an equal opportunity to attend this virtual meeting. However, when you take into account the fact that major, or the majority of women are the caregivers at home, then you also have to take that into account. So you're, you're making the meeting virtual, you're making it to where everyone can attend no matter where they are. However, you're not taking into account the mom of three at home that's trying to attend this meeting, but also take care of their children and, you know, make sure that they're getting an education because all school is virtual right now. And so like, we think that we're making the playing field even and equal, but we don't see all of the struggles that people might be going through like on their own. And so that's kind of the the big example that pops into my mind right now. Got it. So Brittany, can you just walk us through your approach as you developed the article for analyzing the the gender inequities that, that exist and have existed over time in the, the profession of pharmacy? Can you talk about your approach first, and then we'll talk about some of your specific findings? So, you know, obviously we did a pretty wide literature search to try and really define what our current status is. And as Dr. Smith kind of talked about, we we really shifted our focus from just equality to also con- uh, considering equity throughout the paper. And I think probably the most difficult thing and what we realized super early on was that there isn't a lot of information that is given or provided in regards to even just talking gender equality within the pharmacy profession. You know, we compared that to our medical colleagues or our nursing colleagues, and and those disciplines just have a more structured way of assessing not only gender inequity, but also consideration for race or the LGBTQ population. So 
first and foremost, we just we we realized that we wanted to the literature that we wanted to to look through and be able to cite just really wasn't there. So it took a little bit more digging, looking at you know rates of professorship or looking at um, rates of organizational involvement, um, promotion, and things like that through the, the databases that we do have, and being able to present that information. A lot of that does just really rely on equality, right? So it's just a basis of how many people hold a certain hold a certain position, how many people um, have a certain amount of authorship, how many women are represented, how many men are represented, and kind of and so on. So we were able to, to in some ways, quantify the equality issues or, or the lack of equality that does exist or the trends that have existed. Um, the equity piece, I feel like, is a little bit more challenging. Becky gave a great example of working from home and the virtual impact of the pandemic, but you really have to have those conversations one-on-one to realize those individual stories. I think there's a lot of considerations in the pandemic alone when it comes to gender considerations, you know, whether it's women having a higher amount of domestic work outside of work, whether it's, you know, increased rates of, of harassment and violence that are really just, you know, we're already ongoing before the pandemic, but increased during the pandemic. There's a lot of those types of things that come into play that are hard to really quantify just in a data set. So you really had to dig a little bit more to understand stories, um, to understand that that equity piece and, and really the background um, that those numbers represent. And so what did you find when you looked at the, the inequalities uh, and as well as then when you looked at individual stories, what did you find in terms of equity or inequities, I should say? You know, I think the equality piece kind of speaks for itself. Um, you know, women tend to not be as promoted as frequently within our profession. Um, healthcare in general and pharmacy in general, if you look at authorship rates, we just tend to be lower, um, especially when you look at first authors compared to, to men. And there's a number of different stats, which I obviously won't belabor here. But when talking about that equity piece, I think for me especially, I really had a larger, or I got, I gained a lot of insight in regards to some of the things that I don't think about on a day-to-day basis. I'm not married. Um, I'm not a mother. And that tends to be some of the, the pieces that can really impact, I think, women. I'm not, not that they're the only things that can impact women, but definite considerations in regards to that, that equity piece and, and so forth. I think the harassment piece and the violence piece, that was really multifaceted for us. A lot of personal stories were shared with the, the group on this call today. Um, a lot of personal stories were shared. And we tried not to talk through specifics, but really just to talk through the general process for how those things are reported um, and why we don't tend to see those stories come forward and, and what the barriers to that or, or to those, um, I guess, truths being told really, really are through, throughout this um throughout the paper. And then I think we also tried to take consideration in other specific areas, such as, you know, time off for grant writing and, and other considerations that maybe were are less obvious to the outside or an outsider or someone that hasn't really um, had a lot of perspective in this arena. Mujda, in the first sentence of the article, you and your co-authors state that all members of the pharmacy profession should have equal opportunity and sponsorship to reach their highest potential. I'm interested, what did you mean by the word sponsorship in this context? That's such a simple word, but such an important word. And I honestly can't remember like how we decided to include it 
or what thought process went into that. But it, it obviously gets our message across in terms of this is more than mentorship or like guidance. It's really that essentially all members of our community need to be equally nurtured towards their paths for success. So that really includes sponsorship, which to me means being an advocate or an ally of all members equally, um, but perhaps even more so for members who have historically had a more challenging time um, gaining opportunities. So specifically, of course, in this case, women gaining opportunities for the things that Brittany mentioned, um, you know, opportunities for promotion or publications, professional society involvement, leadership positions, awards. And so we really wanted to highlight that it's really our um, obligation within our profession to identify women who are, you know, clearly de deserving of these opportunities and then giving them the platform and the opportunity to, to get those recognitions. Got it. Got it. So, Mushta, also, it, I'm wondering, and I think that Brittany uh, alluded to this when she talked about the author team, as well as in beginning to discuss uh, some of the inequality and inequity issues, but the issue of the the dimension of intersectionality here, and 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 so that's really my my question: Is there um, an intersectionality component to this? Are are inequities even greater for uh, Black women, for Latinas, for Muslim women, for LGBTQ women? Are are the 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 risks of inequities and and inequalities even greater? I absolutely think so. Um... And I think before I go into that, I think for our audience, um, it's probably important to kind of define what this intersectionality really means. And it's essentially that there are multiple factors influencing what's going on. So it's not just the gender piece, but it's also these other aspects that contribute to the, to the woman's background. And so I think it's certainly, we can all agree that there's, there's, likely um, some way that all these factors are hindering women from being able to advance and, and obtain opportunities just from an anecdotal experience and observation. Um, but the data also supports that. Um, as we noted in the paper, there are higher rates of, um, of sexual harassment um, reported by women of certain minorities, um, African-American, Hispanic notably, um, compared to perhaps Caucasian women. Um, or even Asian women, women of Asian descent. And I think there really isn't a lot of data on this. Um, I think a lot of it is probably um, evolving and uh, given a lot of the conversations that we're having on these national platforms, we're going to get more data to kind of back this up. But you know, countless stories, I think, is what I've personally um, encountered and, and heard from colleagues personally. I feel like even growing up as an immigrant with an Iranian background, a Muslim background, I personally felt, you know, marginalized to some degree, kind of felt like an other um, within my community, which was primarily Caucasian Christian community. So it, it certainly was a challenge that I felt in addition to being a woman growing up, that this was an additional battle that I kind of felt like I was fighting. And I, and I think we're all, you know, we all have unique backgrounds, unique battles, perhaps, that have molded us into who we are and what perspectives we have. 
And I think that to some degree, that also factors into how we respond to these adversities that we encounter as well. Because if your whole life you've encountered, you know, you've been other <laughs> and you've kind of felt like you were marginalized when you're told that you're not ready for an opportunity or that you're not perhaps sponsored for an award or something, you're going to feel like maybe that's all you deserve. And so I think from our profession, it is our obligation too to identify um, women who fall into these categories, um, into these communities who have been perhaps marginalized even more specifically so that it's really our obligation to bring them up. And again, back to that sponsorship to, to raise them up again. And, and I think like from a personal perspective, it wasn't until I became an adult myself and had children myself that I realized that the things that made me different were the things that were actually my strengths and that I felt really impassioned and, and felt like strength by these differences, you know, and I wanted to, I wanted to rise up and I wanted to bring others up too, who perhaps could look to me as a role model, perhaps could connect to me in terms of like some of the things that, that they saw in themselves as well. So I think this ultimately goes back to marginalized communities feeling like they don't have mentors or role models. And so, I mean, there's clearly, there's some data in the LGBTQ population that that's a huge um, area of deficit in terms of professional development and opportunities for growth. So I think it's, it really is incumbent on all of us to look to one another and, and kind of raise one another up regardless of our differences or our similarities. I want to ask you a follow-up question related to that. It, uh, is it okay and it can't, is it possible that your sponsors can still be someone who's not exactly like you? So, um, you know, a, as, a, as a gay man, can I serve as a sponsor for an LGBTQ woman so just can you talk through that a bit in terms of do our sponsors need to to be um, the same as us or can they be different? I, that's a great question. And I think, honestly, for us to get to a place where um, this is not an issue, we really need to have sponsors that are different than us. Um, I think some of my greatest sponsors in my career have been have actually been white males who have really um, helped elevate me and, and bring opportunities to me that I otherwise would not have had. So I think looking beyond our differences and actually um, just identifying where, ways where we can help one another and identify perhaps women in these minority groups who, who really should be getting some of these opportunities proactively. Got it. So Brittany, you state in the paper that 60% of pharmacists identify as women. And, you know, in 1985, while I was in pharmacy school still, the trend started to shift. That was the first time, if you look at the AACP data, at least, that first professional degrees were conferred to more women than men. It was switched to 54% women to 46% men at that time. Now in 2019, 62% of the degree recipients are identified as female. Nonetheless, as we've been talking about here, inequality and inequity persist. And I guess the question I have for you and I'm not suggesting this as a as the solution, but will this in and of itself have 
some effect at some point. Is there going to be a tipping point where the just the sheer percentage of women in the profession are going to help tip this issue? Uh, and, I, and I think you got into this a bit in the article. So w- what are your thoughts? I think this is kind of a loaded question. I, I don't think just the, the total number of women is going to shift the culture in and of itself. And I don't, I don't know if I would even encourage that as a means to shift it. I think, you know, we've talked about diversity quite a bit. And I I think there is an importance of having all genders or, you know, non-binary individuals. I think it's good to have representation within our profession across the board. So I don't, I wouldn't say that just because more women are becoming pharmacists, that that really in itself will just fix the problems. I think we've also talked, there are several situations where, you know, just because women are the predominant um, gender within the workforce or within this specific company, um, that doesn't really mean the systemic um, problems don't exist. Just because there's a high quantity of, of women doesn't mean um, that they still have, they feel empowered um, in the way that, that what they should. So, um, I mean, I, 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 it, it's hard. I don't want to say that all we, we need to lead the entire pharmacy workforce by being all women. Um, I think one thing that will help as more women mature and if they're willing to become sponsors or mentors to other young women um, and start to really work Uh, towards actively working on some of these issues that do continue systemically, then then obviously I I think there's potential for change. But just in and itself, having women, more women, I I don't think that really fixes any kind of problem. I see. see. So so Mujda, Brittany mentioned this, she alluded to this earlier, but in terms of the evidence base in pharmacy, uh, how robust is it compared to to medicine? And as I said, Brittany, uh, when talking about doing the review, made some reference to this, but I just wonder if you could talk a bit more about, you know, how much evidence we have in the profession and maybe even where we need to go then. So, as Dr. Bissell said, you know, overall, there's definitely more um, data on this in the medical and nursing literature. When we had done the literature search to see what was out there in the pharmacy profession, we really encountered a vast majority of, of hits that were related to nursing and medicine and not really pharmacy related. I think we only identified maybe 17 um, items that actually pertain to pharmacy. Um, and as we identified in the in the paper, there are certainly some opportunities within the pharmacy profession. Um, you know, ASHP is a great organization to kind of help gather some of this data um, in terms of like through residency programs um, and surveys of residency directors and, and preceptors and residents. Um, there's a lot of data that we can get there. So I think clearly what we found is there's not a lot in the pharmacy profession, but there are in addition to what I mentioned, there are probably other opportunities too where we can really tap into populations that we can um, survey and get some more really objective data on this from. There are tables, for example, in the the article that look at leadership positions and professional organizations that look at awards conferred by professional organizations, for example. But when you get to the literature and the evidence on uh, 
sexual harassment. What did you what did you find in terms of the rates of sexual harassment in the health professions? Yeah, and again, a lot of this data really comes from the other health professions, but um, clearly there are higher rates of sexual harassment reported within um, for women compared to men. Um, and from uh, physician survey data um, indicated, you know, sexual harassment rates were 12% in females compared to 4% for males. And interestingly, a lot of the data that was reported on the sources of sexual harassment, a lot of that was patient-driven, which I thought was particularly interesting. Even within pharmacy, we had said the data suggests that 50% of female pharmacists had experienced sexual harassment by patients, providers, or pharmacy colleagues. So quite a high number there. Um, And and I'd be interested to know uh, what percentage was actually patient-driven. And within the medical profession, 81% of female students had experienced sexual harassment by patients. So I think Going back to what Brittany was talking about with, um, you know, is it just our, is it just that we need more women in the profession? Probably not, because clearly, you know, it's not even just intra-professional or interprofessional. It's actually some of that is is driven by the community. Um, and so that's something that we need to keep in mind as well. Um, I also thought it was interesting uh, looking at the, um, the actual reporting of the of the claims of sexual harassment that likely what we're seeing actually objectively reported um, in terms of the data are probably un- significantly underestimated because of fear of retribution and you know worse workplace conditions after reporting. So that there's probably a vast number of underreporting that this is really these data don't really represent what's actually happening in our profession. It seems that there's also an opportunity here for partnership or collaboration across the health professions. Your your point on harassment of health professionals and specifically women by patients jumps out at me then as something that's happening across the healthcare system and that that there that there really could be some collaborative efforts between medicine, pharmacy, nursing, the other health professions to to really take on these issues. Absolutely. I think um, a lot of what we're seeing as patient-driven sexual harassment certainly needs to take an interprofessional approach towards that to kind of protect all of us. What we're seeing, I think, talked about right now is just the beginning of all of this, all of these movements. So we're seeing obviously a huge uh, movement within medicine talking about, just talking about sexual harassment and gender inequality differences, which honestly kind of prompted our discussions likely. But I agree the next step to really actionable change is probably targeting these, um, these pockets where we actually are seeing issues. And I think definitely coming together to target um, the patient-driven sexual harassment is a huge um, opportunity for collaboration. So, Becky, in the editorial that accompanies the article, uh, Dr. Marianne Ivey reflects on the effects of gender inequities on resilience. Do you agree with uh, her take on the issue? So resilience, it's one of those buzzwords right now. Um, 
I definitely do agree that um, gender inequity is an additional barrier to workplace resilience and well-being. You know, it's no secret that many healthcare workers, especially right now within the pandemic, are burned out. We were burned out before the pandemic. And so, you know, any additional factor that you add in on that just builds to it. And so having to overcome, you know, gender inequality and inequity in addition to all of the other ongoing things is um it's just it's additive i would say and so i do agree that it's an additional barrier and it's just something that we need to continue to focus on um as far as like institutional policies and procedures of promoting well-being and um getting rid of burnout i guess if you can get up get rid of burnout Mujda. Do you share that uh, perspective on that intersection between resilience and gender inequities and uh, and sexual harassment? Uh, I totally agree with um, Becky that you know likely some of this um, some of these issues bleed into um, the inability of of women to have a resilient approach. Um, in the profession, um, in the face of the various sources of adversity that we're feeling. But I also think that in this case, it's really, and honestly, in general with burnout, I, is my personal perspective that um, supporting it directly or the consequence of it may not be helpful. And I think ultimately going to the root of the lesion, like the actual source of the, um, that's causing burnout, in this case, it would be the gender inequity and sexual harassment, I think that's going to improve um, conditions for everybody. So Brittany, the article lists critical steps that the profession needs to take to achieve gender equity. What do you and your colleagues recommend? Yeah, so, you know, I think there's a number of different um, steps that really need to occur. And I think those you know, those really are on a macro uh, scale, but they can also be very specific to the individual. Um, you know, one area, especially from a global standpoint that we really wanted to encourage was really starting to analyze these data and really start to report numbers and, and maybe surveying a larger number of pharmacists to really understand the impact that inequities may achieve really across the profession and in a different number of facets. So um, I think that's really important from a large scale. You know, as you continue to work down to specific organizations or specific departments, um, there's a lot you can do within those sections to really push or help solve the gender inequity issues, whether it's the sponsorship or mentorship programs like we talked about before, or really just kind of defining pathways for reporting of these types of issues. But that's something that I think people don't really understand until you're in it. Like if you if you do experience some um, level of harassment, whether related to gender or or not, um, it can be really difficult to navigate those conversations and really know which agency you can report to and what. And then on the flip side, what that agency is is willing to do to support you. So some of that requires more proactive policy and procedure from the organizations or departments themselves. From a personal level, 
you know, I think there's a lot of, of things you can do just on your own to really work through this, um, including, you know, becoming more aware of your own personal biases. I've had to do a lot of this regards in regards to a lot of different things outside of just the gender issue um, and trying to assess your personal biases and where that lies in your institution and how you can work within your institution or whatever your your local government would be to, to really push to advance um, um, equality, equity, um, and, and a more inclusive space. So I, I feel like I named a lot of things, but I think there's a lot of things that you can do really depending on, on where you're at and where your powers lie. Um, but I think it really just takes the willingness to do something. Um, and and you, if so, you, you can likely make some kind of change. Becky, what would you add to that? You know, I definitely agree with everything that Brittany said. Um, there are a lot of steps and next action, next actions that need to occur um, within within this to you know solve and work towards more gender equity um, and not inequity. And so, I think one of the things that she mentioned, the reporting mechanisms and like how cumbersome that is, is like really still understated and unless you've been in it and have had to do it within multiple organizations at the same time you just don't understand and so I still think that that's our biggest need moving forward is just a reliable interconnected reporting mechanism and then the bandwidth to keep up with all of that. So keeping up with what's being reported, keeping up with what's being investigated, like obviously our professional pharmacy organizations aren't police. Like we don't expect our um, organizations to go in and, you know, do these FBI like investigations, but we do expect them to, you know, hold the standards and morals that they, that our organizations, you know, preach like hold their uh, members accountable to those standards. Mujda, what about you uh, in terms of the recommendations? Is there anything you would add on that, that Brittany and Becky didn't um, hit on here? I think they touched on a lot of the really important factors and, and the paper certainly, we, have, we outline a lot of the call to action items um, that are tangible steps that we can take as a profession. But I think just big picture, small steps lead to big actions. And if we're, what we're really trying to get to is like a cultural shift um, where it's not acceptable, where there's like a zero tolerance policy towards sexual harassment, um, where we really promote gender equity on a systemic level, um, I think we have to change people's minds and change their behaviors. And that takes time. But I've already seen, you know, just through having these conversations, um, having you know, this interview and, and the audience listening to this, I think um, we need to keep having these conversations because I've observed a change already in terms of people's awareness and in terms of the, I think the conscientiousness towards making sure that we're doing the right things, kind of like what Brittany was describing um, and our own reflections of our own internal biases and how we can take steps to change this. I have a great example of speaking to what, what Becky was talking about with like the, the differences uh, in gender inequity for women who have children. You know, my personal experience in the last year and a half, um, it's been pretty challenging with the kids. And like, there definitely were meetings where my kids were on the meeting and it's really difficult to, to speak and participate in the meeting where, when your children are sitting on your lap. Um, 
but I recently was involved in a discussion about scheduling a business meeting. And there were many voices kind of, you know, expressing an interest to, to have that meeting during business hours to make sure that, you know, we could accommodate working, working parents during that meeting. Um, so I think we've clearly seen a change already, but I think we need to keep doing the things we're doing and keep bringing awareness to the issue, keep having a zero tolerance policy, obviously making change on a policy level as much as possible. But unless we have that like cultural shift, I think policies are really not helpful if people aren't aware of them. So I think the talk is very important. So, so Brittany, Mujda has said, you know, is she's already seeing changes, uh, but since you've published the article, what have you heard from our colleagues in the profession? Are people taking notice? Yeah, I de- I've definitely heard um, from quite a few people around surrounding the issue and what was kind of brought forth on the paper uh, within the paper. I think you know there was some organizational changes that were really occurring while we were developing the paper, which some of those we were able to actually mention within the manuscript itself. But a lot of individuals have at least reached out to me personally to talk through what they can do. Some individuals are really just working on how they're um, working with their learners and how they're creating a more safe space and how they can, you know, increase transparency of of being able to have these conversations and and being able to report or support those people in their lives that that are learners or maybe someone um, that they know within the profession that is experiencing some kind of harassment or um, inequity. And several of the people that have reached out to me have tried to start making strides within their local organizations. So there's a lot of state organizations right now that have a focus um, really on larger inclusion um, and diversity efforts, which they've They've sought out representation from us in, in regards to doing so with, with that gender piece. So definitely, definitely heard a lot of conversation around this issue, which makes me happy because I was I'm always really fearful that it, it will lose momentum and, and we won't make a lot uh, of progress. But I think people are continuing to work more locally and try and develop pathways towards correction of some of these, you know, age old issues, really. Well, that's all the time we have today. I want to thank Brittany Bissell. Rebecca Smith, and Mujda Hevner for joining us today to discuss gender inequity and sexual harassment in the pharmacy profession, Evidence and a Call to Action, which was recently published on AJHP.org. Please join us here each month for discussions on contemporary practice issues and interviews with AJHP authors. Brittany, Rebecca, Mujda, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you so much for having us. Yes, thank you. Thank you for listening to AJHP Voices. For more information about AJHP, the premier source for impactful, relevant, and cutting-edge professional and scientific content that drives optimal medication use and health outcomes, please visit AJHP.org.